0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, we've been hearing a lot about the budget problems facing state government, but what about the counties? HPR's government reporter, Ryan Finnerty, has been looking into that and joins us now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, so how are you doing? So what can you tell us?
1: Well, there is some good news uh, on the on the county front, Catherine. Everyone's probably heard that the, the state government is not doing so well when it comes to the budget. There's a $2.3 billion shortfall But there is some good news on the the county side. They're not looking as much of a problem. And that's largely because the two different levels of government use different sources of revenue to get their funding. The, The state primarily relies on general excise tax or a sales tax, the personal income tax, and the hotel room tax, which is known as the transient accommodation tax. And all three of those have been hit by this pandemic. Consumer spending is way down across the country as people stay home and they're not going out and shopping and uh, restaurant activity has obviously taken a hit. Uh, That affects GET. Hotel occupancy is way down. There's fewer visitors coming to Hawaii, which means less revenue being generated by the hotel room tax. And we know that unemployment uh, got to really high levels uh, in the early months of this pandemic here in Hawaii, uh, 23 percent in April and May. And so that means fewer people paying income tax, if fewer people have jobs. So all of those kind of uh, conspired to really, really negatively impact state tax revenue. Um, but by contrast, county governments in Hawaii derive most of their revenue from property taxes, whether residential, commercial, um, or, or agriculture. And that has largely been steady. Uh, there hasn't been yet a major drop in property tax revenue uh, that 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 formula is based on the value of property there's a set tax rate and then you multiply it by the worth of the property in each category and that produces the the tax bill and so we haven't seen a, a drop in property values in Hawaii so tax revenue has And largely stable on that front. Um, I talked with Miku Matsuyama, who's the finance director for Kauai County, and she told me that on the garden aisle, the administration has not yet had to make major budget cuts because those property tax revenues have been holding, and uh, they're even seeing maybe a slight increase for residential property values. But she also warned that that could change if COVID becomes a long-term problem and produces some deeper economic impacts?
2: So what we're seeing now is that residential real estate is holding. Um, I think because interest rates are so low and the market is favorable. So assessed values for residential homes are staying pretty stable. Um, if not, there there, there actually is um, evidence of a, a slight increase. But what we will probably see is the reduction in assessed values for hotel and resort properties commercial properties, you know, we have way more vacancies in, in you know, commercial buildings, uh, but we do anticipate that assessed values for everything other than residential will probably reduce.
0: So do we have a feel as to when the counties will have to
1: make cuts? Yeah, as Rico said, that this is a longer term problem they're facing. She mentioned their fiscal year 2022. So uh, we probably won't start to see this, Uh, this play out for at least the next year, you know, property values, um, that's going to be a a longer term shift. Um, But some counties are already making cuts, um, not necessarily because property taxes have declined or tax revenues have declined, but because they are seeing reductions in some of these other sources of funding that they get. And we mentioned a few of those at the top that uh, at the state level are way down. But some of that money actually gets distributed to the counties from the state. So these are things like the hotel tax that we mentioned, the gasoline tax. And for some counties, they get a, a small share of the general excise tax. Um, those get basically skimmed off the top from the, the state revenue and then handed down to the counties. And then they get to use them for different purposes. Um, some are assigned and some are are flexible. The hotel tax, as I mentioned earlier, is functionally near zero in terms of revenue, um, and the governor has told the counties not to expect to get much uh, from that, and so Hawaii County made the decision to just eliminate that as a source of funding from their budget plan entirely. They zeroed it out, Um, and here is Hawaii County Finance Director Deanna Sacco.
2: We had to trim about $40 million out of our budget and move things around. We're still working through all the different funding sources, so we're spending conservatively until we're given the authorization to go ahead and spend the full amount.
1: And $40 million is a significant chunk, but um, it's not catastrophic in uh, proportion to the Hawaii County budget. And so Anna said that they've been able to make up that $40 million in cuts by postponing the purchase of new equipment and vehicles, things that might be used to maintain county roads or parks. Um, they've also paused hiring uh, unfilled staff positions and reduced overtime. Those are techniques we've seen the state use as well. So the impact is is being felt already, but um, a lot of that at Hawaii County was kind of proactive budgeting. They made a decision to assume they would experience this big, uh, big drop in revenue um, and cut preemptively rather than waiting for the the funds to dry up.
0: But what about like just general, you know, city services? I go here in in Honolulu or on Maui.
1: Yeah, I should say that uh, Maui County and the City and County of Honolulu declined to participate in this story, so we don't have specifics on what impact they're feeling. Um, I have specifically talked to Hawaii County and Hawaii County, but I think. The, the formula is more or less the same for all four counties. The bulk of their funds come from uh, property tax revenues. Those are not expected to decline uh, in the short term. So residents likely won't see a huge change in county services in the immediate future. Um, you do have to draw the distinction between state and county spending, and that can be sometimes hard to discern. But, you know, a county road versus a state highway, um, you're going to have different impacts on those. But uh, if this downturn does continue longer term and eventually impact property values in some way, um, the the people I spoke with said road construction and upkeep is going to be one of the main things that uh, residents will see delayed or postponed entirely. So those potholes might not be getting filled as quickly or repaving might not get done. Um, Another area that I looked at that's potentially pretty serious is, uh, grants to nonprofit providers of social services. Um, the state gives a lot of grant funding to these different organizations that do things like homeless outreach, elder care services, um, even nutritional assistance, um, services for at-risk youth. All kinds of stuff that uh, that gets funded. Uh, funding funding gets funneled from the government to these nonprofit providers and then they use that money to to uh provide these social services the county governments are a significant source of that kind of funding as well um and so in in the past the state has had to cut that in the last recession that was one of the main things we saw the state cut if the counties get into trouble with their budget we could see funds for those types of activities in jeopardy as well and you know that will produce a very noticeable impact on health that's available to residents and just services that are available to everyone in the community.
0: Yeah, we'll just have to see uh, what happens in the next few months. I know, I think the hotel industry was eyeing the, you know, their resort property tax. We'll have to see if they ask for a break on that. But thanks so much, Ryan.
1: Sure thing, Catherine.
0: You can find Ryan Finnerty's stories on our HPR website. Uh, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
1: support for Hawaii public Radio comes from Matson committed to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands now and in the future Matson.com
3: Join us tonight at 8 pm on HPR 2 for the next in our Hawaii Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. The pure genius of Mozart is celebrated as pianist Norman
1: Krieger performs one of Mozart's most admired concertos. Plus, we'll hear Shostakovich's powerful and provocative 10th Symphony under the direction of conductor, Carl St. Clair. That's today at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music.
3: Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design.
0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, it's been a week since the University of Hawaii system has been back in session. So far, enrollment at UH Mānoa in West Oahu is up about 3%, with Hilo and six of the community colleges seeing a bit of a drop. For the most part, students and faculty are working remotely, but there are some in-person classes. And while there have been some positive uh, COVID cases, there are no clusters so far. Here's UH President David Lasner.
3: We have communicated with our students. We've really let them know how important it is. We're also doing some work with peer communication because, you know, we think hearing from your president has some value, but it's limited as opposed to really understanding from peers. In fact, our communication students have been producing some videos in partnership with Department of Health, and those are going to start getting, I think, both television and social media soon. But, you know, we've just hit a point where people have to Believe this really matters, and our students are smart, and I think they get it. And we just have to keep that message going. You know, we have the modified quarantine under which the students who arrived here with with a pretest, uh, we still had them on a modified quarantine situation where they could only participate in UH activities, and we call them daily. And I actually had a complaint from a parent who felt that we were being too hard nosed with the parents' child here, and I think we all felt we are pretty proud if we have put fear of God into that student and we're really serious about this modified quarantine that we bought into as we said from day one we will have cases on our campuses we have a website up that you can look at how many we have less than 15 for sure
0: now in the dorms you're at 50% capacity have we're you actually under that now have yeah. you had to make room for isolation units in, in our, Absolutely. And in use.
3: The last number I saw was that we have four of our housing residents in isolation.
0: Okay, and then what about contact tracing?
3: The Department of Health does the contact tracing, but we use them as our reference and experts because that gets centrally coordinated. Because we don't have access to the, you know, the contacts that are likely not associated with campus transmission to the best of my knowledge we don't have evidence of campus based transmission so even when we have two people who in the same building who tested positive in one situation they were on completely different floors and through the contact tracing process it appears they both were family related not campus related so we don't have anything yet that has appeared Looking like a cluster on campus. We have 19 cases across our 10 campuses since April. Since school started, we have eight. And that's, again, on all campuses.
0: And for the first time, you also rolled out a new app.
3: We worked with a local vendor. It was developed to our specifications, quite affordable. I have to say we're really pleased, especially when we saw some of the costs incurred at other places within the state and beyond. It is a requirement, if you are going to campus, to check in daily. And the app asks you about symptoms, about travel, and about close exposure to anyone who tested positive. And if you answer no to everything and confirm that you're telling the truth, you get a little green screen. And we're asking, for example, if you want to walk into the library, you may be required to show on your on your app the green on your uh, mobile device the green. So we're rolling that out so far so good. It wakes you up if you approach a campus and you haven't checked in, it sort of says, "Hey, did you check in?" So we just do a simple geo-fencing. We're not tracking movement at this time, but we're looking at whether that might make sense for the modified quarantine, where we pretty much want students to only go from home to campus and back. And because
0: a lot of the learning is being done remotely, we really had the big test oh, yeah. this spring, and yes. your information technology people uh, did pretty well.
3: And we're doing even better now. We had the opportunity of the summer to equip facilities. We beefed up some of our infrastructure, more capacity for um, storing videos of classes for people who really are sick and miss them entirely. We want them to be able to catch up on, say, a Zoom class or a recorded video. We increased our Zoom licenses. And our faculty spent time over the summer, many of them, figuring out how to do better at teaching online. So, you know, I think that's one of the capacities that we will be a stronger university after all of this for having pretty much all of our faculty experience what it means to teach online And even if you're going back to teaching in the classroom, there are opportunities to do things online uh, that you really can't do in the classroom. So we're hoping some of that rubs off. Uh, But we're also seeing the opportunity to develop more fully online programs. Uh, We think our future is both online and in person. Uh, Depending on disciplines and audience, there are a lot of good reasons uh, to be doing your learning on campus. Uh, But we also see lots of opportunity to serve many more people across the state uh, with fully online offerings. Similarly, um, you know, we figured out how to get by without signing forms for most of our transactions. So uh, I go in, I get asked to go in. I mostly work at home, but when I go in, I usually have to sign things. But the things that I am signing in person with a pen tend to be retirement certificates and donor letters as opposed to university business transactions.
0: Well, that's great.
3: Um, It's really good. And it's, again, something positive that we will take away from this because we're not going to go back to sending paper all over our campuses and around the state uh, when we have learned that we don't have to.
0: And you're just coming off a big meeting with the Board of Regents uh, about the need to come up with a short-term emergency plan because of COVID and our funding situation. Where are we at with that?
3: We actually have broken this down into two initiatives. One is we need a plan to get through the current fiscal year where we're coping with a pretty significant decrease in state funding, although we have not formally received our uh, state budget allocation yet. But, you know, as a university, that's more than half of our operating dollars come from the state. It's about 60 percent across the UH system. So when that gets hit, it's a pretty significant hit to us. The other 40 percent or so of our operating budget comes from tuition. We're also looking at financially the amount of tuition billed. And the campuses that are up also right now appear to be ahead on revenue. So that exceeds expectations. try to budget pretty conservatively, but the hit on our state funding is real and significant. I think we were the first entity in the state going back to March to actually freeze new hires, major new expenditures. Travel was pretty easy to freeze in the COVID era, but we didn't know that at the time. And so those all add up to savings as well.
0: I think there was a lot of hand-wringing earlier this summer. We were hearing everything, you know, from, oh, they might shut down a community college or, you know, cut programs. Yeah,
3: so that's part two. So part one is getting through this fiscal year. And what we've communicated very clearly within the university and with the board is that, you know, this is a minimum four-year financial crisis for the state of Hawaii, probably longer. So even if we were to reopen tourism, whatever that means, it would take quite some time for the numbers to recover. We're also observing that most people don't actually want it, to come back to the same numbers in the same way it was. I've already been talking with John DeVries, who's coming into HTA, and talk about how UH can help support. A different kind of tourism that's probably healthier for the community and maybe even higher value for our visitors that's just one example but we need to look at structural changes to the UH operating budget for a minimum of four years and and that hit is both because of the state side but it's also you know even if tourism were to come back the state will need to take out a substantial loan and the terms of that loan are that it has to be paid back over a maximum of three years so just make up a number one of the numbers the governor has thrown out is borrowing in the range of 750 million the legislature has thrown out borrowing up to two billion so if you take that number and divide it by three and then add a little bit of interest the federal loans are pretty low interest even at 750 million the state will have to pay back 250 million a year for the next three years which is a pretty sizable cut in our budget just to pay back that loan for three years. So we are looking at a variety of approaches, looking at our programs, looking at how we collaborate between our campuses, looking at our costs for maintaining uh, real estate that maybe we can do without. Those things are on the table uh, to see what, what we're gonna need to do to reshape ourselves. And at the same time, we need to focus what we're doing on the things the state of Hawai'i needs from us the most. So we need to keep educating more students. My uh, friends in the arts and humanities are quite concerned that I care about it, and I really do care. Those are rigorous forms of education. Even if you don't get a job directly in your field, they still use their education. Those are fields where we teach critical thinking, creativity, innovation, collaboration and communication in different ways but we also have to educate people for the jobs in Hawaii so we need healthcare workers we need educators if the state is going to grow out of this with construction that's one of our habits you know UH has to teach people both for the skilled trades but also the architects and engineers who are going to help us design a more sustainable future. We need to be helping kickstart the economy. Clearly, that work has to include growing agriculture. It has to include growing computer science and engineering. It has to include growing creative media. It has to include growing a more sustainable form of tourism. It has to include growing green jobs. These are all things that cannot happen without UH as a strong participant and partner. And we've got to keep growing our research enterprise. You know, we're really proud. Last year, we brought in uh, over $450 million in extramural funding. That creates thousands of direct jobs. It's a significant industry in and of itself. And those jobs are all across the state and with significant economic ripple on every island. You know, we're a big part of kickstarting this economy and creating a more sustainable economy for the future of Hawaii. And we've got to make sure we continue uh, to maintain and invest in those areas for the state. And that simply has to be our priority as Hawaii's public university system.
0: What about athletics?
3: You know, we're part of two conferences, both of which came to the conclusion that we did not believe we could conduct fall sports safely. We have postponed them, not canceled them and so in both conferences we're looking at the possibility of having spring seasons in those sports that were postponed you know we try to be optimistic that we will understand enough about how to conduct athletic conferences safely by spring Uh, we have not said anything yet about our winter sports so that includes basketball and spring sports are still on hold so um, that's a work in progress so i meet regularly with the presidents of the universities in both of our conferences And that's who makes the decision. We listen to advice from our athletic directors and coaches. We also get medical advice. And then at the end of the day, the presidents all, we look each other in the eye and say, do we believe this sport can be conducted safely given what we know now? We all have different conditions in our space, in our uh, places. We have different travel restrictions. We have different gubernatorial orders. We have different county and city orders. So it's really... Quite a challenge to figure out how we can make this all work together. But I think we're all committed to doing our best to try to let our student athletes compete if we think we can do it safely.
0: And you know, you've got all kinds of programs, uh, jewels really, uh, that maybe were bringing in revenue. You know, say the Waikiki Aquarium, right? They had the facilities income that they banked on, the luau's, that kind of thing. And then those have gone away. I mean, how? committed are you to things like that
3: you know that's one that we've actually talked about and you're you're right it's really a challenge and we're looking at some ways to tide things over when we have live collections you can't really just shut them down we have animals to care for frankly so we're trying to figure out how to weather that and identify par- potential partners who can help us. And and you're right, we have a, a large number of these things that represent financial challenges that the best we can do is work through them one by one because every one of them is a little bit different.
0: you have been hearing from UH President David Lassner as we move into the second week of the fall semester. Today is actually the final day to register for a course and also the last day to get 100% tuition refund. Thank <laughs> you. For a reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat's Stuart Yurton has a story about how the next two weeks will be critical ones. Good morning, Stuart.
4: Uh, Good morning, Catherine.
0: So, yeah, uh, you were monitoring a uh, House COVID committee.
4: Yes, that's right. So the House uh, COVID Committee, as we call it, or more formally, the House Select Committee on COVID-19 Economic and Financial Preparedness met yesterday and uh, really laid out a sobering um, idea that the next two weeks uh, are critical, really, for the whole uh, future of the pandemic and the state in a lot of ways.
0: Well, I, I know, you know, no one really imagined that this was going to stretch out uh, as long as it has. Everybody was hoping that there'd be a quick turnaround, but there hasn't. And the reality is it, it could take longer than anybody thought. So, what, what's the, the snapshot of why these next two weeks are so critical?
4: It's so critical because as these uh, business and political leaders and community organization leaders view it, uh, the state really needs to get its act together and put in place the systems that were designed to uh, contain the virus initially. As you recall, months ago in May, early June, we had almost zero cases um, and the idea was to reopen with extensive contact tracing, testing, and isolation of people who test positive and their close contacts to keep the virus in clusters. That was the idea. could be kept in clusters, people could go about their business, and we could open uh, the state to tourism, too, with a pre-travel testing program. That didn't happen, and it is pretty clear now that the contact tracing was never in place. It wasn't adequate for the surge in cases that we had. They couldn't get their arms around the cases in time to contain them, and now we have wide community spread. So, so talk, the idea is – I'm sorry.
0: No, no. So so talk about this, this five-point plan that the, they say we need to roll out.
4: Well, right. The five-point plan, uh, if, if you look at it, they said the first one is um, a change in leadership, which, in, in a sense, we, we've had to some extent. Uh, Bruce Anderson, the health director, uh, announced that he was uh, resigning. Um, they want uh, another thing, and we'll get back to this in a second, more accurate and transparent data. Um, but again, the key thing is the, the testing, tracing, qu- and quarantine also communications so people can know about it especially uh some of the pacific island communities that we hear um haven't uh, been um, as as connected and haven't been um, have been sort of marginalized and haven't gotten word so um that's pretty much it plus enforcement of of all of these things those are the five points so again transparent data effective testing tracing and quarantine Change in leadership, communications, and enforcement. And I know so that that's yeah,
0: yeah. I, I know there's been a call for you know more transparency and more. I don't know. They want to call it metrics, but just better data that is shared with different agencies. Right.
4: No, that's right. And again, the the House Speaker Scott psyche who's co chair of this committee, was really um, concerned. He's been waiting since early August for some data, including things like uh, identifying general places or activities where the virus starts, uh, the Department of Health finally um, came back to him and told him, we don't have that. So he's saying, well, we don't even know how this started and even the types of locations. So how can we know what not to do?
0: Yeah. So yeah, you wonder where is the data and can we see it if if it does exist?
4: He says he doesn't think it exists because he's asked for it, and again, if the House Speaker can't get it, and we have a legislator, uh, U.S. representative from California who's asked for it, if they can't get it, um, the media can't get it, it, it probably doesn't exist.
0: All right. And the governor's office, what do they say?
4: Um, well, they didn't respond to the latest uh, request yesterday, so we're waiting and seeing, but okay. so far we don't have the data.
0: All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Stuart.
4: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dean and DeLuca, Hawaii, now at Farm Lovers Market, Kaka'ako, offering grab-and-go dishes such as ulu burrata caprese, Saturdays, 8 to noon. DeanDeLucaHawaii.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations
3: that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Four Seasons Resort O'ahu at Ko'olina, SMS, and State of Hawaii Office of Elections.
1: They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: Ever seen a shrimp with three eyes? It's called a triops. We learned about it thanks to author and explorer Susan Scott. Her Ocean Watch column ended its long run in the Honolulu Star-Advertiser this summer. But you can now find her online. Leave it to Scott to find this three-eyed creature in a mud puddle on the hike to Kaena Point. That's where we pick up the conversation.
5: It's just a little critter that someone told me about. We're in the puddles there. Actually, Bruce Carlson, the former director of the Waikiki Aquarium, emailed me and said, oh, you've got to go out to Kaena Point. There's triops. So the, the, one of the great things is I have a lot of readers who, who clue me in. They email me and call me and say um, that they, they found something that's cool or this is happening and that's happening. So I do get a lot of help. And after all these years, I have you know a lot of readers who follow, who remember that I wrote about something and then they'll tell me a story. And it's really been a lot of fun. That's why I was so disappointed when the newspaper cut the column. And then I thought, well, I'll just keep going. I can keep doing this. So it's been really an interesting transition for me because I'm learning a lot of new computer skills. You know, I made a new website and did some things that were really helpful. So so change is good. Yeah, change is good. People still write me almost every day saying, why aren't you writing anymore? So the nice thing is I get to tell them that, you know, I can subscribe them to the column, and I think it will gradually build up. But, so
2: you're still discovering treasures. I mean, I yeah. saw one of your columns about a –
5: Oh, uh, a blue dragon, which was just a stunning uh, visual. Oh yeah, my God. that was amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I love those. And, and one of the North Shore artists said he was inspired to make a piece of art, which is beautiful. And so I drove up to the North Shore and saw it and bought it from him.
2: And then you uh, just recently, I think, came across some Spanish dancers on the beach. I was so jealous. Yeah,
5: we found five, five different ones and several days. And so, yeah, it was an amazing thing because I'd never seen them snorkeling there. So the fifth day I came home, got my snorkel gear. Usually we're out when we could still walk on the beaches, out about 7 in the morning, which isn't usually the time I'm snorkeling. I like to ride in the mornings. And so I got my mask and snorkel, and went back, and I did not see any in the water. So I don't know what was going on, but I haven't seen them since either. And of course, now we can't walk on the beach. So I've right, been for a but while. I mean,
2: I normally go looking in the water when I when I'm out swimming. I mean, I swim to look at these fabulous creatures in the ocean. Yeah, but I was just stunned that you you find them on the
5: shore. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of them on the shore, and that's not the first time I've on a dozen probably at Lanikai Beach. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
5: I'm between the North Shore and the windward side because my husband works sometimes on the North Shore. He's an emergency doctor. And so he's sometimes on the North Shore at Kuhuku and Wahiwa and other times at Castle. And so we're back and forth between our two apartments. So I have a North Shore, a bunch of marine animals and the windward side. They're really different.
2: The neatest thing that I've ever seen was actually a seahorse in the water. Oh. And I remember telling a photographer friend of mine, because we would go out in teens, you know, when I was yeah. on TV, and he's a waterman too. And I said, Oh, I would just love to see a seahorse out, you no. know, in the wild. Yeah. And that was like, two days before Christmas, uh-huh. and I saw a seahorse that oh, came so on. It. That's, that's amazing. For months, I would just go visit uh-huh. and uh-huh. just say hi. And then then they had one of those flotilla things, you know, with the college kids.
5: Yeah, yeah. And
2: I never saw it again in that spot. I don't know if it got trampled or if it got irritated
5: and moved on. So on well, phone. there was a bloom of seahorses around 2012, mm-hmm. 2013. I don't know how long ago you saw yours, but... I was getting notices from other people, and a couple of researchers wondered if someone had released some seahorses that were not native to Hawaii, and that's why we were seeing them all over the place. I saw them on the North Shore, and people on the Windward side were seeing them. But they did some DNA studies, and it looked like they were all native, and they were just having a big bloom one year. But I haven't seen them since.
2: I did learn from the aquarium director that they did release a number of them at one time, and so he was uh-huh. happy to hear that I saw saw this out thriving. I know. And then I do hear stories like they're in the alibi. They're over by Flat Island, and so you, you just kind right.
5: of, other swimmers in the water will just uh, share their adventures. Yeah. It's really exciting. I was looking for years, but the only ones I ever saw was that one season, but I saw dozens. I saw them mating. It was an amazing thing. I saw two of them. A male and female and they hooked their tails together and did this little dance and really I was almost drowning i was so excited because how often would you get to see such a thing and I have started some fuzzy pictures of it because I was afraid to get too close and then I saw a male maybe that male in the same area not too much later with his belly really full like he looked like Mm. he was pregnant so that was pretty cool.
2: Well, I know that there are people that say, "Oh yes, we've seen them, but we don't want to tell people where they're at because they're afraid right. that the aquarium right. trade will come and snatch them up." Yes, but then there's also the fact that hey, you know, they're out there, and um, you know, respect them and and,
5: right. and help nurture them. Yeah. Well, I that's one of, one problem I have is I really want to share my experiences because it's so much fun to me and it's so exciting to see a new marine animal, but I, I never know if I should tell people where this thing is or, you know, if it's like that frogfish. I thought he's right out there, right out in the open off a little beach park on the North Shore. And I didn't know, I did not say where it was because I was kind of worried about him. But then on the other hand, I want, I want people to know. So right. sort of um, depends how I feel that day, I guess. I have had people write to me and say, stop writing about the seahorses or something else that they don't want people to abuse.
0: That was marine biologist and author Susan Scott. We will continue our talk with her after we take a pause for the monthly civil defense siren test. Stay with us. We will be right back in just a moment. up our conversation with marine explorer Susan Scott, who has turned her attention from shrimp, sea slugs and Spanish dancers to Hawaii seabirds. Take a listen. (coughs) Those were the calls of the fairy tern, or white tern, and the golden plover, the kolea. Scott has written about both. She shares with us her latest endeavor, the kolea count.
5: Recently, I was invited to be a board member for the Hawaii Audubon Society, which I have never been a board member of of anything before. And so I'm now working on a kolea count project that's sponsored by Hawaii Audubon. That I started, and I started it because people write to me so much about the kulea that I really felt that there was a a need to find out more information about them. Because every time I would try to find out how many we have, or if they're increasing or decreasing, or what's happening, there is not that information is not available. So I started my own website through the Hawaii Audubon Society, and we're going to do a count this winter. And I wrote a book about them with the expert Wally Johnson. The world expert on these birds so that's been really fun too. getting to know him and, and calling him a good friend is a privilege so he's a, he's a great friend he lives in Bozeman Montana though he comes here to do his research but he doesn't really have anybody here full-time except me I'm setting up a project there's a website called Kalei Account.org that's sponsored by the Hawaii Audubon Society and I I'm working right now on a database that I'm gonna send everybody who subscribes to me on my website and everyone who has written me about Kalea, which is five or 600 people of when we're going to start a count. And then people can sign up for certain areas like the golf course they golf on or cemetery they visit often or or city or county park, and then report back the numbers and we'll see what happens. It's, it's statewide. So it'll be fun. I'm going to pick up whatever anybody doesn't sign up for, I'm going to do myself, so that sounds like a, a fun project for the future, if we can fly in our island again. And I wrote a book on white terns, too, our, our city bird. Yes, bird, I, I actually nesting. picked that yeah. up the other day. Oh, good.
2: <laughs> good. Yeah. Oaks who are just so fascinating, because I just love that they just
5: lay an egg here and a leg there without a nest. And you want to say nesting, because that's what birds do, but these birds do not have any kind of nest, so... Yeah, I, I, and I also am friends with Rich Downs, who's been monitoring the white terns. He's another Audubon board member. And so he and I have also become friends, but he's sort of stranded on the East Coast right now. So we're all doing the best we can with our, our bird projects. But I think counting Kalea and helping Rich with his citizen science project for the white terns is also a really good thing to do during these uh, COVID stay-at-home times because we can still get out and walk. And that's... But you need to do to count birds. So.
2: Yes, and I was over by Black Point with a friend, and we were walking, and I was surprised to come across that little bird sanctuary. Oh, yeah. Bird sanctuary. Yeah,
5: yeah. That, that's, that's really amazing. It's not open to the public. So that's uh, Wedgetail Shearwater, the seabirds. I was really
2: interested to learn that they do bring school group through there to help with that project.
5: Yes, there, there's a lot of really great Audubon volunteers that are monitoring and doing some research there and other people bringing groups in. So if it's organized, you can go there. And I've actually um, done a lot of volunteer work there myself. So,
2: yeah. Well, it's funny because growing up in Guam, we hardly had any birds because they were decimated by brown tree oh, snakes. Right. And right. so I had a friend who actually studied birds, and he said, yeah, I go out in the forest and you don't hear anything. Yeah, and yeah. And so there are very few birds uh-huh. of that I grew up with. Right. But coming here and then seeing so many birds around. And, right,
5: I was only in Guam once for a few days on another trip, stopped over for another trip. But it was really amazing to me to not hear bird song because uh-huh. I'm so used to it and kind of tuned into it. I did come across a really neat article
2: from the head of the zoo in St. Louis. And uh-huh. he wrote an article in the paper saying what I... What I have at my zoo is more rare than a Stradivarius. He it's a Micronesian kingfisher, oh. and they were helping to breed uh, it there at their facility, and uh-huh. uh, they were successful. Oh, cool. And um, I just talked to someone with the uh, Fish and Wildlife, and they said, yeah, that there's uh-huh. a project to reintroduce some of those back on some of the islands in the Marianas. It really is neat yeah. what can be done when the zoos get together and say, you know, we can do this, and yeah, we can save this species.
5: Yeah, exactly. No, it's great.
2: So this, this Colea project
5: that you've got, when does it start? Well, it's sort of on started already. What I did is I launched the website in March and April of this year. And, of course, March was the beginning of the pandemic. So I just thought, well, see what happens. It's sort of a pilot project for people to just report the birds that they see. And I thought, I'll just see who's paying attention, who's really counting what's happening. And we I had a tremendous response. It was, it was really encouraging. So I just thought, well, that was only two months, and it was sort of an uh, unusual time when people weren't really out and about. But it turned out that I think people are more aware of the birds in their little parks and their neighborhoods because we aren't doing as much as we used to, activities. You know, we're not going out and doing other things. So, so this... Count is now sort of started. We are recording the first birds that came back was July 25th. And so I'm sort of looking at when they came back, how many are here in the winter, when they leave, and how many spend the summer. And those are the four questions that Wally, who spent his life researching these Pacific golden plovers, wants to know. And said that no one has ever actually really monitored the birds to answer those questions. So I'm going to start the, this, the actual winter count. People have already written me a lot of emails about their bird is back. And so that's sort of we're already now into when a lot of them are coming back. But the females come back first. They're probably exhausted. And then the males next, they sort of stay with the, in Alaska with these chicks for the, their first few weeks of life and months of life. And then the males come back, and then the first-year birds have to find Hawaii on their own which is amazing to me. And so they get here all the way up until November. They stay in Alaska as long as they can to fatten up, to get enough fat to fly to Hawaii. And then the ones that make it are pretty much gonna be here and survive if they've made it into December. So we're gonna start the winter count in December and go through the end of March. And I'm asking people to count their area like three different times if they can. If you can only do it once, that's fine. And if can do two or three times, that's even better to have a better accuracy rate that way. So, yeah, I, I'm collecting email addresses, and people can write me to the coleaccount.org column or through my website, and then I'm, I'm compiling all those emails, and I'll send them out as a as a notice that we're starting and that you can sign up and let me know which areas you'd like to count. So you basically had a soft launch? Yeah, it was a soft launch, and then... It went well enough that now we're going to do it for real. We want to do it for over over some years, and different people can count different areas or a couple people can count the same place. Really going to see how it goes statewide this year and then tweak it as we need to do it. But it's it's really fun. A lot of people are doing it anyway. I got an email from someone who said, I always notice all the birds at uh, Hawaii Lower Ridge, so I'll just send you the numbers. And I thought, "Well, oh, that's great. That's a nice big area, so. I think that's happening anyway, so I'm trying to organize it. We'll see what happens.
0: We have been hearing from author and adventurer Susan Scott about her efforts to launch the Kolea Project. Scott, who has written extensively about her marine life expeditions across the Pacific, has turned our attention to the small and mighty Golden plover as she transitions from a daily newspaper column to an online blog. Look for links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, vaccines typically take years to develop, but maybe not for COVID-19.
3: In a very paradoxical manner, the worse it is out there, the quicker we will be able to demonstrate efficacy.
1: And will the vaccine search inspire a new way to fund medical R&D? We have the ability to develop therapeutics, so why aren't we doing it? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
3: Starting this evening at seven, following Counterspin.
0: Well, that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we hear about the Big Island. Where are the jobs? Where are the COVID-19 cases? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at hi conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Hawaii Talks.